Good afternoon and welcome everybody to another of our autumn series for sales leaders. My guest this afternoon is an experienced commercial, commercial business manager with a wealth of knowledge in the B2B marketplace. He has a passion for working in fast-paced, hyper-growth startup environments. If that wasn't enough, he specialized and is experienced in managing large teams and taking SaaS solutions to the corporate and staffing markets across EMEA. Well, my guest this afternoon is Ollie Sharp, who's VP of Revenue EMEA at Salesloft. With over 2,000 customers on its books, Salesloft is a leading sales engagement platform with the promise of helping sales organizations deliver a better sales experience for their customers. Prior to joining Salesloft, he spent 10 years at LinkedIn, where he took the business from a standing start to a multi-million dollar business with over 400 clients. Well, Ali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm delighted you can join us. Ali, I've been following what's happening in the UK these days with respect to the lockdowns, working from home. And, you know, as of midnight tonight in, in Ireland, we're going into level five. I know you've got three levels in the UK. Mm. We've got five <laughs> levels here because three isn't enough, right? <laughs> and, and, and people have this experience already of working from home and working remotely. But at this stage, my sense is, and from watching what's going on and talking to customers, there's a sense of fatigue building in that, when it happened at the start of the year, there was a bit of a novelty. It's no longer a novelty. And it's affecting people in terms of their own mental health, in terms of how they focus on work and trying to get that balance right. And in fact, I had somebody on a call recently and they were apologizing because uh, this guy's partner was in the background working on something else and they were competing not just for bandwidth, but just for airtime uh, in the apartment and I had another call recently where there was a guy online and he had a two-year-old child on his lap because that the, the school or crash the child went to had some sort of an outbreak and they had to stay at home and people are trying to work in that kind of environment that we've had no experience of and how do you manage to stay sane and stay focused in, in that kind of environment? I think one, one great thing about it is we've all become more human from it. We can accept a dog walking in or the doorbell ringing and all of those kind of things. I think that's a great thing to see because you, it's maybe sometimes we're too professional in the way we do things. It's nice to see the proper people at the other end of the Zoom. But you're right, it's tough. And I think what, has, what hasn't helped is people seeing light at the end of the tunnel and then us going backwards. That's made it really hard because everyone's starting to look forward to going out. Um, we've put some things in place uh, to make sure that we're keeping a sane mind the whole time. And I think it is just very much, if you look at Schwarzenegger's Law's Peak Performance Pyramid, where they talk about looking after yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, I think that's really important. And I think it is for leaders and sales teams to really recognize what they're not doing for themselves. We make sure in our check-in in the mornings that we're talking about uh, some commitment to do something for ourselves, whether it's someone playing the guitar, going for a run, it's too easy and I'm finding at the moment I've got four new starters I've got two more starting soon it's too easy to sit here from eight in the morning till six at night and then go sit in front of the telly so mm. we've all got to commit to ourselves and I think it is to ourselves but at the same time I think it's things that leaders and colleagues can do to encourage uh, people to get out the house if you're allowed obviously I'm not going to tell people to break the law but to go out and do stuff just something for themselves and not constantly and I did it last night. I sat on the sofa with my phone and was still sending emails at 10 o'clock. And I've got, you've got to stop. You've got to look after your mental well-being and think about mental, emotional, spiritual and uh, physical capacity of your body. Yeah. Actually, I'd like to talk to you about those because you've broken that down into a number of different areas. And I think the mm. strategies and tactics are probably very different in each, in each area. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's, you said physically, emotionally, spiritually. Was there a, a fourth one? So mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual. So yeah. it's, it's, it's from Schwartz and Law's pyramid, peak performance pyramid from the book. Um, and they studied a number of sports professionals to work out how they got back to peak uh, performance very quickly, whether on court or between games. And um, it's something that is a really nice model to follow because when you look at it, physical is about making sure you're drinking the water you need, eating healthily, uh, getting your heart rate going, 
once a day, whether it's walking or whatever, but that's looking after your body. Emotion mm. is making sure that you're doing the things that um, keep you happy, spending the time with your loved ones, doing those things that if you don't do that you miss. Um, then emotion. the mental side is taking a break, doing things that switch off your brain and whether it's going for a walk, doing meditation or anything like that, it's that's that bit. And when it comes to spiritual, it's not about um, religion or doing yoga or anything like that. It's around your purpose and your values. Mm -hmm. And it's around making sure you understand um, what your purpose is and what your values are. Because if you're not aligned with them, you're not motivated to be at your best. And if you put mm -hmm. all of those together, the best way I always tend to go through this as a, a with my team in definitely in Q4 or at the end of a, a quarter, because judging yourself of normally what it comes to is you judge yourself on every level and then work out where you need to spend more time. And it's so important to be able to say, yeah, I'm not looking after my body at the moment. I need more sleep or mm. I need to get out and do a, and go for a mm. walk once a day or spend time with my loved ones. And you can tell when it's when when things get going and get, the going gets tough, it, you do struggle to keep all of those four in place. And if yeah. you're missing one of them, then it's a problem. And it, it, it's just good to remind people we we did it in the office when Caroline Flack committed suicide. I think it's having it brings out people talking and talking mm. about what really matters to them. Um, yeah. And I think something like that led by a leader is pretty uh, important because it creates that open environment. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I know you said something earlier about not breaking the law. I, I, I don't sit on that fence. I say if it's looking after yourself, your emotional health, I say to hell with the law. The law's an ass sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you got to look after yourself first, right? The law will take care of itself. It's temporary. But I don't think people can afford to. Because I think what, are that, what that does for people, it adds a lot of additional pressure. Is that yeah. you know, I'm feeling this. I need to go for a walk. I need to go and exercise. Uh, I need to go you know climb a hill whatever way we exercise and then they're kind of but i can't and i'm thinking mm. priority number one look after yourself because yeah. if, if you can if you can't look after yourself you can't look after your family you can't look after your business and the, the law is going to be really cold comfort if you can't do all of those things exactly you're not you're not you're not at your peak if you're not doing those so uh, 100 very important 100%. i'm wondering then are there any activities and i just had something in mind i wanted to kind of run by and get your thoughts on where you can combine elements of those for example photography is a hobby of mine and i certainly know if i go into uh, do landscape photography and go to places that are just you know breathtakingly beautiful uh, you you mentioned spiritual i, I certainly experience a sense of awe and wonder mm -hmm that is it's an emotion that you just don't experience on a day-to-day -day basis it's something that i think is connected with this is bigger than all of us uh, and it's got nothing to do with religion yeah but it is something i experienced there and it is something that's creative in terms of its emotional connection but there's also a physical element as well if you have to go to a place and i was just wondering if you had any ideas of activities that people could kind of bring it all together and, and experience that. I, I think what you're talking about, there's an element of mindfulness there because mindfulness is obviously just thinking in the moment. And some, if something is grabbing your moment and stopping you from thinking about work, worrying about COVID, worrying whether you, you can go out, then that's important. And mindfulness isn't something, uh, meditation isn't something I practice every day or anything like that. But I know that if I'm stressed, that it really works for me. And that can mm. just be going to listen to a meditation. I really think it is something that is, it's important, just something that takes your mind, that your mind doesn't mm. wander because you, it's, it, what happens is your mind wanders to the negatives, the stress that that's happening in your brain. And it's like the monkey in the chimp paradox, the bit that acts quickest on you. Um, it's controlling that and making sure that you can control what you're thinking about, whether it is photography. For me, it's tennis. I, as soon as I get on the tennis court, and luckily COVID actually got me back to playing tennis. I haven't played for years. Been been very injured throughout, so it's, mm. it doesn't do me much good. But I, when I get on the tennis court, my mind just stops thinking about work. It goes straight onto that. I don't worry. And it's just finding that thing that you enjoy, that your mind stops wandering into the negatives and the things that can stress you out. Okay, to sound advice, what you're saying is just, it, it's, it's not even positive thinking, it's just, it's from what you're saying, I think it's, it's not not thinking, 
It's sort of not thinking, but thinking. It's one of those, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of an absence. You're trying to let go of thoughts yeah. and free your mind, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Um, that was something that actually crossed my mind. Now, <laughs> in saying let go of all thoughts, I just let go of all thoughts. <laughs> that, that, and I'm sure it'll pop back into my I'll come back to. Uh, when I was doing some research, Ollie, I, I noted you, you, you mentioned a few times uh, in previous interviews about the happiness advantage. Mm. And, and, and you had some really interesting thoughts from that that might, um, that might support what we're trying to achieve here in terms of helping people kind of take care of themselves in, in this time. Yeah, so Sean Aker wrote The Happiness Advantage and he um, did a lot, there was lots of research done in universities in America where, I mean, he starts the book by saying most people think, general idea is that successful people are happy. And people think, oh, but what happens with that is you've always got something to get to. Oh, when I get this job, I'll be happy. And then a few weeks later, you're like, oh, well, I want that. And there's always a next step. But what the science has proved is that it's actually that happy people are successful. And yeah. there's really good research. And there's one bit of research that looks at the diaries and journals of some nuns, how positively they're talking. And it shows in the end that not only the ones that were most positive in the way that they wrote their journals had got further in their career, but they actually lived the longest as well. So it proves that the happiness is makes you healthier, more efficient, more effective but your job and helps you become successful mm. and I think that's really important when we look at it it's and especially the way that I've built or I, I hope I've built the culture of my team if you can find the right people and then set expectations early on and make sure that they understand what is needed yeah. how to do it then you yeah. concentrate on the happiness of them. You've done that disappearing trick again. Where yeah, no, <laughs> I, I have. <laughs> I'll fix that. I know what it is. That's what we call in the term a technical glitch. In other words, oh. this idiot didn't change the battery before he put the camera in. But never mind. I'm on audio and I have that fixed in that a moment. Cool. I, I, I um, thought it was the. Uh, the oh, no, oh, oh, it's fine. On happiness, um, isn't happiness the ultimate success? If you think about it, that if yeah. you can be happy, that that is success. Yes, and this comes down to, and there is a book I've mentioned um, a few times to people, and there, there's someone on this call that knows I've mentioned it a few times, uh, The Monkey Sold His Ferrari. And when I read that, I really started to understand more about my purpose and my values. And it got me to question what I saw as success, because I always, I realized in myself that what I saw as success were things that were set by other people's expectations. Yeah, And I felt that um, I really worked out what actually mattered to me and what I saw as success. And what it comes down to, the way that I was, someone interviewed me for a book, is that when you're on your deathbed, so I talk so morbidly, but when you're on your deathbed, there's only you that judges your life. And that comes down to how happy you've been. No one else. So if your life is about making other people happy, then fine. But work out what your purpose is and what makes you happy. And that made a big difference to me because it made me realize that my job at LinkedIn wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. I wanted to go be a creative, creating something somewhere else. Um, so really working out what makes you happy and what makes you tick mm. has been a huge difference for me. And um, I always thought I was money motivated, wanted power, wanted all these kind of things. Rubbish. That's not what I wanted. And then now building something where I'm concentrating on the happiest happiness and success of my team and the success of a business. That's what's making me happy. So I think that working out for yourself, what makes you happy and having those as your purpose mm. values, whatever you want to call them, was a massive transition for me. Talk to me then, Ollie, about how you figured that out. Reading that book, it just, it just helped me. It was really weird. It was like the answer to everything. When I read a book, I normally just underline a lot and go back and read it. With this, I wrote pages and pages of notes that were actually learnings about myself, not what it said in the book. Um, and it got me to question. I, I, I started writing down what I felt were would drive my happiness. Mm. Then I questioned why that drove, why that was. And was it from past experience? Was it the people around me? Was it setting expectations? Because I was like, okay, well, if I don't do that, what will people think? And that started telling me that it wasn't for myself. So when mm. I started thinking more about, okay, but what makes me happy? What makes me content? And it came down to providing opportunity and a good life for my family, my immediate family. 
then I thought, right, well, what is it that gives me the happiness in my day-to-day -day job? The Jeff Weiner, CEO of LinkedIn, ex-CEO, always talked about happiness was looking forward to going to work and looking forward to going home. Mm. And I think that's a great way to live. If you can be excited about going to work, because most people, when you're spending a third of your life at work, most people are dreading going to work. Yeah. But it's, um, and my wife had cancer five years ago. We made a commitment to both, to each other that from that day forward we saw a different idea on life of what we wanted to do and we said we'd never do a job that didn't keep us make us happy and not just we were content but we were yeah. happy in yeah. um and I, that's the way we chose to live and i think that it's sad we had to have uh yeah. cancer in our lives to have it but it made a massive difference to how we think and what we do well that, that's interesting and i want to come back on that on a theme because i think when 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 life throws up shit as, as it does it's how we look at it often can determine how we come through it. And I've often found that by asking what's good about this, like if you talk about the lockdown and COVID, you said you, well, you rediscovered tennis, right? Mm. What's good about this, that we start making a list that it's hard to do when there's so much stuff that's going on, that's not familiar and that's uncomfortable. And it can be hard to make space to do that, but it's actually a really good exercise. Uh, yeah. But I just wanted to share something else as well that it pops into mind when we talk about happiness. Uh, somebody uh, once told me that this, the, the secret is that there's a secret to happiness. <laughs> but it was, and especially a simple one, was something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. Those three things. And if any one of those three is down, it, it leads to that state of discontent or malcontent that we can experience. But I want to come back on this thing called purpose, because when I hear that, it's, it's, it can be interpreted or is sometimes framed as something that we were put on this planet with a purpose. And I just don't buy into that. I, I really don't. That's not to say that we haven't got something that can give us a sense of purpose. That's different. And I wanted to explore that with you, what your thoughts were, and just to maybe unpack that a little bit. Uh, yeah. and, and, and how do we find it? I mean, we're all different, is what it comes down to. And it's there may be people with the same purpose in life and stuff like that, but we are so different. And um, so it's about looking at yourself and really understanding yourself. I think that the sort of the awareness side I'm really interested in, the people mm. that are aware I find intriguing. And when I started looking at myself more about being aware of what annoyed me, what make me ha what makes me happy, what drives mm. me, that helps you define, understand what your purpose is. And defining purpose is a bit weird because defining it's, I think it's naturally within you and you've got to work out, I'm trying to get, it sounds like I'm getting all spiritual here, but it's, um, I think your purpose is just working out what really drives you and what you want to achieve. And for some, it's, I mean, my wife's a counselor, so her purpose and what she does things for is completely different to mine. But why I went into sales to earn money is completely different to what it is now as a purpose for me. As I've got older, you start learning those kind of things. So I think it's just understanding mm. what you, I mean, you hear of people that are in sales that then go and start up a charity. They've actually realized that this is not what I'm what I want to do. And mm. it, it got me thinking I was asked to, one golden nugget is something is a website and a book. And I was asked to do something for that about something I live by. And that's when I started talking about the sort of when you're on your deathbed. And that to me is what I see as my purpose. When I'm on deathbed, how am I going to go? Yeah, I was successful. I achieved X, Y, and Z. And whether that is big house Ferrari or whether it is having an impact on people's lives and providing success for other people whatever it is that to me is what i think is purpose where hmm. you can judge your life of whether you achieve something down to what your own goals were and stuff and sadly some people don't work that out till too, till too late but it's uh, i'm not saying i'm wise that i've worked it out but i think i'm different to what i was yeah i i always think that it's an ongoing thing as well it's oh gotcha like, yeah it's, it's like i still kind of try to figure out what i want to be when i grow up it's would <laughs> <laughs> be an astronaut. I'm curious, you mentioned your wife was a counselor. Did that help yeah. in any way? Well, yeah, because we chat about it. It's um it's this I find it very interesting. I, I find the psychology very interesting. I find sort of the I've I've always found Buddhism very interesting and psychology and the way that the brain works. And she she stopped being counselor after after cancer, so probably four 
comments five years ago. So she's not always been that, but I've, I think it checked, I think cancer was the biggest impact on us, mm. the way that we thought. But yeah, I mean, it's, we talk about things and she's forever correcting me on things that I think wrong. And like the latest one is using the word should, and that's thinking about what, uh, what I should do is what other people mm. impact of what they think and stuff. So, but yeah, it does have an impact, but it's, uh, we have some very interesting conversations about it and stuff. And it's, it's what interests me as well. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? When, when, when you have a life altering experience, uh, I had one with one of my children was born at 24 weeks, uh, one pound 10 ounces. You know, that's a significant thing. My stepson was as well. So I know we're all about it before my time, but yeah. Yeah. So, good. but when it happens, it's just perspective and everything changes. That things that you felt were really important. And I know there's people watching this now and, and their next promotion and is, is the most important thing to them mm -hmm. in the world. It's when you go through something like that, you realize it's meaningless. Now, that's, I'm not trying to denigrate it. It's important and people need to have those, whatever the carrot is, it really doesn't matter. Whatever the mm -hmm. carrot is, so long as it's driving to some sense of product. And when I say productivity, I don't mean in a corporate sense. I just mean in a, in a life sense that it's, you're, you're gaining new experiences, you're learning new, um, you're gaining you not more knowledge uh, you're learning more about yourself. Now, I'm curious on this one as well, because you mentioned about self-awareness. Uh, it's just one of those things that I've learned over the years is that it's a minority of people. When I say minority, you know, 30, 40%, it's not a huge minority, but um, or it's not a small minority, you should say, but have zero self-awareness. Mm. Just have no sense of how other people perceive them. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, well, if you have no self-awareness, then where do you go for help? Because it is something you can develop. I do know that. Yeah. But, but it's I not automatically someone, there. But, but it's very, it's very uh, someone's own view because I might feel that I'm self-aware, but people may feel I'm not self-aware. So it's hard to say. I can't say I am 100% self-aware. I, I believe that I have worked on that. I think reading the um, emotion intelligence books, um that has helped me and i think it, it's that was something i was interested in quite a long time ago that i started becoming more aware and i think yeah. that awareness is very important in sales massively important and not in just leadership but in sales itself so and from emotional intelligence is about understanding how, how you are how things affect you so if i've had a bad night the night before or some I'm annoyed with something and I go to a, to do a sale then I'm not going to be in that same mood I may react differently to somebody someone in the team and if I'm not aware I won't be as understanding of the person and stuff so I think that awareness is huge um, mm. and just even so much as being aware of your own mood at a time mm. or something that's impact you I think something that I've often seen in sales, seen in salespeople where I believe I've tried to help a lot of my team in the past, not current team, but at LinkedIn, is people react quickly to something. It's typical salesperson trait. And I used to do this all the time. If I got a bad email saying, we want to complain about you or we're not going with you, you email straight back. Why, why aren't you doing it? Whereas someone that's self-aware will take themselves away from the desk, understand how they're feeling in themselves, understanding mm -hmm. really. And what it comes down to is you have a choice of that next action. But a lot of people don't allow time for that choice. They simply let the chimp in their brain act quickly and go back. And whether it's email or call and awareness is huge. If you can, mm -hmm. that's a biggest thing that people can, more they yeah. become aware, they develop as a salesperson. Yeah. It's like anything that triggers you, the best thing you can say to yourself is, I'm a dribbling fool and I better not do anything right now. It's just, exactly. It's just, it is funny. Stop. Yeah. I, interestingly, I, um, I, I saw one of your videos where you talked a lot about mindful leadership and servant leadership. And first of all, is there a difference between the two? And then let's explore them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, servant leadership is more about understanding your, and it's not like we're there to, to serve, but it is, you're serving your team. You are there to take away problems, get stuff sorted, etc. And so servant leadership is, I like it. And I think there's great elements to it. Mindful leadership to me is a bit, is more, is, quite different in the way that it's about 
always being present and it's not serving them the whole time. There is an element of it in there, but there was a great word that I came across while researching it called equanimity, which is the calmness and not letting things impact your mood. And what happens mm -hmm. is you, that breeds resilience within the team and calmness across the team. And um, so I think that being present, having the equanimity, um, that has a different impact to being servant leadership. I'm not saying it's one or the other, but they are different. Um, mm. And I think taking bits of both of them are definitely great things to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the, the idea of mindful leadership, having that calming influence and building the resilience of the team and always being present. It has a big impact because we've all had one-to-ones with a leader where it doesn't seem like they're present and um, they're doing emails or whatever. And it's not a good thing. So yeah, yeah. that's I yeah. back it. I, I, the, the mindful stuff, I, I get it. it. It's about maybe, I'm going to use the word Zen, it shows my age, um, but it is a sense of calm and not letting everything trigger you and bother you because that, you know, we give that off, then we get that back. I get that. Servant leadership thing, my jury's still out on that one, Ollie, in that it's, and maybe it's just how it's packaged this idea yep. of we're there to take things away. And I get that to a point, I guess, I guess what I really want to ask you about is this, is where's the line between that being a, a, a set of arms there to support, nurture, but mm -hmm. drive, and being somebody that everybody in the organization likes to delegate up to, and now you've got all of this crap yeah. on your shoulders that you shouldn't really have. I think my explanation of it probably is nowhere near as the book uh, as good as the book but the book is too long i'm not into really it's not a massive book but i like a book that says what it's got to say and then moves on and it um i like the servant leadership it's not about just taking stuff away it's about i think it's more about like the compassionate side as well compassionate difference between empathy and compassion compassion you actually action something to take that problem away from them and it's my cro at the moment the biggest difference i've seen with him is right where can i help and it's like, where mm. can I get this approved? Where can I do that? And that to me is where servant leadership really shines through, where somebody is right. Okay, what problems do you have? How can I help? How can I take those away from you? Mm. And it's giving them what they need to be successful is a better yeah. way of saying it. Um, and But yes, I think that the mindful leadership, yeah, the, the, the calmness you can give to your team, the happiness within the team when you're doing it um, has a big impact. Okay, makes sense. Uh, I see a few comments here, Ollie. I'd like to quickly go to them and also say to people is if there is a, uh, you have a question or you just want to contribute on any of these topics we're exploring, pop that into the comments field. Uh, we have Simon Sinek, Finding Your Why is a great book. This comes from uh, Casimiro. Uh, it's a great book to address what Ollie is talking about. The online course is a fantastic experience. I've done it, read the book and found my why as alignment between values and purpose. Uh, I don't think anybody could disagree with that. I think the, the work Simon Sinek does is top notch. Yeah, I yeah. thought you meant that Simon Sinek was listening and made a comment, which <laughs> was even more impressive. Yeah, I, I, I agree he might with be. finding, with, um, he finding be. your why. And I think that it's particularly good in brands because I mean, the example he uses about Apple yeah. versus Microsoft, um, yeah. I think it helps in branding, but also in ourselves yeah. as well. Yeah, I also, the. Um, there's a book that you might remind me who, who, who's the author. It's called Your One Word. Um, it will come to me. I, it, it will come to me. I had a You're on your own podcast. there. I haven't read that one. Yeah, uh, it, it will come to me. But that's another one as well because it gets you to think about, it's that, not your purpose, but it's what drives you. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a core value. And you kind of distill it down to one word. Just the process of doing that, I found highly interesting. Uh, what else is this? Uh, oh, yeah, here is the one. Um, right on, Ollie. <laughs> That's a comment. And it says, I think it was the comment to me is in terms of uh, not having self-awareness. It says, ask for feedback to create self-awareness. And I think that's a that's good advice as well. Um, yeah, and I think we're all scared of feedback. It's um, well, as soon as they yeah, it, do it's, feedback, it is. it's a scary thought. You don't know what they're going to say, but it's 100%. It's 100%. That, is, that builds in the awareness of it's yeah. It's about how you react to it as well. Yeah. It's very easy to get feedback and go, well, they don't know what they're talking about, but you've yeah. got to get over yourself. You've got to take it away and calm down from it. Yeah, it is. I've been through it a couple of times and uh, it's 
just the anticipation and kind of going, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? It's, <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not good, but it's invaluable. That's what I would, it really yeah, yeah. is. Uh, Hal says, uh, I wanted to share something I learned recently. You may find interesting. There are studies suggesting that your IQ lowers by 25% following rejection. Okay. And analytical reasoning reduces by 30%. Uh, now this is interesting, actually, really interesting, because rejection is 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 not it's not something that's an objective thing. Mm. It's not it's not the weather. You can't measure it. It's something that we experience and we feel. So maybe the issue is with us, and 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 we'll talk about that. I because th I think it's it's a really good comment, and analytical reason so reasoning and IQ. Uh, being rejected, being it in sales, dating, interviewing for jobs, literally makes you dumber for a time. Uh, so it is absolutely important to take a period of time to reflect before doing anything rash. I think that was a comment on sleeping on it and, and, not, and not immediately jumping in when, when, yeah. when something triggers us. Good, there good. Is, um, there's a book by um, Matt Syed called Black Box Thinking, which is interesting. It's not about rejection. It's about um, overcoming negative things that happen and he like he just really good books from outside but this is about black box thinking being when an airplane crashes you have a black box but not many interest industries when something goes wrong actually mm. look why it's gone wrong and how they can improve and mm. even so much as years ago medical didn't really do much of this if they're doing a brain, brain transplant and it didn't work then they didn't really look at why it went wrong and mm. i think that's a really good thing to think about but by not looking at what went wrong we can't develop and improve for the future yeah, it's a good point. Actually, it's funny. It reminds me, I remember a uh, must be maybe 10 years ago at this stage and I was working from home uh, downstairs office, which is in a room beside our front door. And I'm working away and my wife's in the house as well. And the doorbell goes, she goes to answer the door and I can see who had kind of come up towards the door. It was these two young guys probably looked like just around the 20, 21 mark thereabouts and uh, dressed white shirts ties really well groomed right you know where this is going and so my wife there's a there's a short conversation and the two of them they walk away and they cross over and call on a couple of other houses and i'm thinking here's two guys who do this on a, for a living and i guess they were either you know they, they were mormons right and they were in ireland on on their two-year mission and i remember thinking as i watched them cross the road that uh here's these people who pay they, they save up you know summer jobs to go for two years to be rejected all every hour every day for two years and i thought yeah. i need to talk to these guys because i want to i want to understand how they process that and still say stay sane and so i got up and the funny thing was i had been playing football the night before and i got a, a, a kick in the back of my leg so i was limping heavily and I was, I was using a stick to support myself. So I wasn't thinking, right? And I go to the front door and I start, and I wave the stick in the air at these two guys across this, guys, come here, come here, come here. And I, I crossed the road, but the two of them were kind of petrified. What's this guy doing? And then, oh Lord, I, I can't believe I'm going to share this now because this is just too, nobody else is going to hear this. There's no one on it, don't worry. No, just no, no, it's um, <laughs> just as just my ignorance. And they have these badges and I look at them, I think they're name badges, right? And this guy has Elder Johnson on it. Here's me thinking Elder is his first name. So I started saying, hey, Elder. <laughs> That's how stupid I was. <laughs> Until I turned to the other guy and see Elder with a different surname and I go, oh. But uh, it was interesting what they had to say. I said it to them. I said, look, guys, you know, this is a relatively, uh, uh, you know, middle class neighborhood. You're going to get rejected, but most people are polite to you. I I'm sure you go into neighborhoods where people are not so polite to you. And he said, yeah, all the time. Um, I said, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And he said, they're just not ready. I just thought it was really? just wonderful. It was just, they're just not ready for the message. <laughs> and it didn't make a difference whether you agree or not. They're just not ready. And they, they couldn't take it personally. If they did, they couldn't do the job. But yeah. I thought it was interesting. It was, it was just insight into how easy it is when you frame it. You know, they didn't feel that they were being rejected. It was just the message that they had was being uh, rejected. And, yeah. it, and it was only being rejected because people weren't ready for it. 
Well, my no, my first sweet. job out of uni um, after working at Next was um, door to door sales. So I did two year, two years door to door sales. So you get to handle rejection. I think Respect. that it helped me become a better salesperson. And what we oh. used to do is you got given a hundred doors and to knock, and by five o'clock you'd probably gone through about seventy of them and not sold anything. But the way that you think is there's 10 people in a hundred are going to buy from you. So if I've gone through mm. 70, I'm closer to finding the 10 yeses. And just having that mentality in sales, I think is, is really important and it mm. stops you getting frustrated. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to, to be able to handle the, the knockbacks and it's, it's also important to be able to build that resilience. And I think it does mm. come. Um, it's you, there's certain things that you can do to help build your resilience or build the resilience in your team. And I think that's very important in sales. If you're constantly getting kickbacks and you're getting upset by it, then there's something, is sales the right job for you? Yeah. Uh, You mentioned, Ali, earlier about we're all different and how we process things is going to be different. Mm. And that kind of reminded me, I know you talk a lot about diversity in the workplace and its importance and how it can impact the bottom line. Talk to me what you've learned about that. Um, so my one of my errors when I first went into leadership was that I built a team that was so undiverse, it was unbelievable, not just white males, it was very similar, all white males, and it was, um, I, at the time, I just thought, yeah, it's culture, and this is what frustrates me about the word culture, because people can just use the word culture, and it means a good thing, and I learned quickly that there, there was no diversity of thought or anything within that team. And then when we changed that and had an impact on it, I started seeing a difference of how we solve problems and how we came to decisions. Um, there was a huge impact. And there was a talk at Sales Confidence last year that looked at even having um, dyslexics in the team. And I had a couple of people that were dyslexic in my team. And if I wanted to throw, throw some ideas around, I made sure one of those was in the room because they think differently and men think differently to women. It, no, no, neither of them are right, neither are wrong. It's just the difference of opinion in these kind of things can help you arrive at a better, better uh, decision. Um, so then we, I sorted out at LinkedIn and we, we had a diverse team at the end in regards to male, female and cognitive diversity. But when I joined Salesloft, my priority was to make sure that we built as diverse a team as possible really concentrating on the diversity the cognitive diversity rather than male to female and we do have a good split of of gender but it was more a case of the mo as long as there was a common connection which came down to more the value side of people and personality that they would get on i tried to build a team that was as dispersed as possible so when they all met at the beginning before we went to atlanta for the for a couple of weeks everyone said everyone is so different But then when they came back from a week in Atlanta, they were like, ah, right, I now see the connection. We all get on so well. And I think that it's something I learned because the more dispersed that those people are in regards to how they think. And if I don't have somebody that has a family, I want someone that has a family. If I don't have somebody that has lived abroad, I want someone that's lived abroad. So so it's thinking of all the things. If I interview someone, what are they bringing that no one else has? And because I've started thinking like that, then it becomes easier to fill in the gaps. If you've got this tight knit team that are all quite similar, then you take someone outside of that, it becomes hard. Mm. If you've got a dispersed and you're just filling in the gaps between, it makes a big difference. And I think that it's, it's amazing, rather than culture fit, think culture add, what is this, per- or, or, what is this person bringing that no one else has? Um, but are they still within that, area that they're all going to get on and they're not a complete lone wolf Mm. when we're a team sort of thing it had a big impact and I think that what I see in the team is the happiness within the team that everyone is so different but everyone gets on so well and there's a common values within them yeah actually I want you to go back there for a second because you said something that just went by and I heard it and I was processing it as you were talking and I and I realized that actually it's, it's it's quite a profound statement it's the culture fit versus the culture ad. And it's easy for people to miss that. And what, what I took from that was the cultural fit is we look for people who will fit in. Therefore, they have to look and act and have the similar experiences and values as us. Whereas yes. by getting people who are different, 
we're not necessarily a cultural fit in, in the traditional sense, actually add and then create a new culture or a more expansive culture that yeah. in it has then a more inherent diversity of thought, experience, actions, you know, team relationships, the, the, the whole gamut, I guess, that extracts the value from, it's like, you know, they say that travels broadens the mind and it's all it is is just that new experiences that you didn't have before get you to think differently. I think it's the yep. same when you work with people who think, think differently to you. Uh, not alone does their thinking add value, but it also forces you to think differently so that you can communicate with people perhaps who, who, who think differently. And I think I was the typical um, salesperson that went into sales leadership. And I think that, and this isn't bad-mouthing anybody, I think yeah. that I was very much like this. I thought I knew best. I didn't think I needed other people's point of view. I thought that I knew the answer to everything. Um, mm. And very quickly I learned that was not the right way yeah. to lead. You don't create the followers you want. You're, you're sort of, you're managing a different way. So I had to change that by myself. But I think yeah. that the more diverse people are you have around you, then, and the more different views you have, the advising you it's a huge difference to where you yeah. end up and it's and also it changes the culture and it's a lot easier to recruit going forward because no one's that one person that doesn't fit. Yeah. can i ask you a question on this thing because i am I'm I'm, I'm 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 interested in this topic and because i've experienced it at a number of different levels uh i see one there's a there's a organization in ireland called the 30 percent club and the the goal of it is to have 30 percent women in leadership uh, in, in the corporate environment. And they've been very successful. There's several banks that are already 50% board level. Uh, not everybody for sure. And uh, I do think it has to reflect the demographic. Um, and th their, their rationale for it is very metric driven, not in terms of the numbers like the 30%, but that the impact it has on the bottom line. They're able to say that having gender, and just, just stick with that for a moment, just gender diversity can have an impact on that. I know you quoted some different numbers as well in one of your presentations about the difference it can make. So that's on one end where you can say, you know, it makes absolutely sense, it's irrefutable, it's self-evident. Mm -hmm. There's some things I've experienced on the other end of the spectrum that frankly do disturb me. I see organizations that are, that attempt to be so diverse, they actually become exclusionary. I have seen uh, organizations and have worked with these organizations where everything is acceptable if, if you have a certain set of values. Mm -hmm. And if you are outside of that, um, it's just not, and, and I know one of them, I'm obviously not gonna mention organizations, but this one was in the US. And it was uh, an example where uh, some of the reps were uncomfortable that the, the company had sold a product to the White House. They demanded of the CEO that the product would not be renewed. And that if you were a Trump supporter, you were just not welcome in the company. But yet this company and you read their annual report claimed to be the ultimate in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. But only if you come with certain- <laughs> not a Trump yeah, story, yeah. And, and I just wonder is, is there a danger we can go too far with this as well that we forget what the the real purpose of this is yeah i mean i have witnessed where i think that it's it may may that people can can perceive it as gone the other way and i think that it to me it's about getting the right people for the role whether they're whatever gender whatever it is get the right people for the role but if you need to balance the bench you're seeing and lean it one way to get an equal uh, equal opportunity for race and gender. That's the way to think about it. You, I would never take a female or a, or a male over the other just because of their gender. But mm -hmm. if I know that I uh, don't see enough females and I see more males, I want the final interview bench to be three females to one male because mm -hmm. then it evens it out. And I think that this is this is how I think it should be done. And I think that we we now have more females in our team than male. And I think that for me, what is a big difference is that I think sales 10 years ago used to be very a male dominant environment. And I think that was impacted by the actual, the culture and the environment within sales. Sure. 
um, where it was very much lead managing with a stick rather than anything else. And I think even sales itself has transformed that the skills needed to be in sales are no are not gender specific anymore because it's all about building trust and i think maybe it used to be and the females weren't encouraged so i would love to see the industry actually doing something proactive to actually increase the number of females in sales because to me where the where the problem is is at leadership leadership level but we can't solve that until we get more in at the bottom end of the funnel to move up through the SDRs, through the AEs and up the ranks. Is there so an there, there's, I think it's changing, but if you go to most larger companies um, that have got maybe even an SDR floor, you will see an imbalance. The, the ones that I visited that are the larger companies, the, the older type companies, hmm. I've seen a, a big imbalance where it's probably more like 70% male. Um, yeah. And I think that um, the industry and the role is no longer like that, that there should be a difference. It's um, I mean, I do. My wife always tells me that I think we think my daughter will move into sales because mm. she doesn't she doesn't say can I have a biscuit. She'll say can I have three or four biscuits. So it's um, yeah. she's following yeah. in my footsteps. Then at this, Ali, so at what I mean, 100 percent agreed with you in terms of bringing in diversity of thought, experience, etc. And. But at what, where's the threshold in that? Does it have to be 50-50 in a role? And if so, then is that another form of discrimination in that if you're, if you're I'm favoring one gender over another, for example, because we're at 20%, uh, but we want to get to 50%. Is that, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to understand where to turn the tap off. And yeah. that and I just, I don't know if anybody ever... I mean, the, 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 the ideal situation is is that it doesn't matter what they are. If we, that male and female are completely uh, level with each other. But yeah. I do think this, it does add to the diver- cognitive diversity to, to, yeah, to yeah. have a mixture. If you've got only men there, if you've got only females there. So I think it's making sure that there is some balance. Yeah, I have, have here a comment, Ali. I have a comment to get your opinion on it. I'm leading a team of 35% uh, females in sales and I'm very proud of it. Positive discrimination is accepted. And, 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 and I guess my question to that is, to what point? Yeah, I, 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 think, it's, I think it's a good point and I'm not sure uh, of the answer to it because, I mean, 35% females, great. I mean, we, we have over 50% females, but it's not like I've gone, I want more than 50%. Sure. I, just, I just want a reasonable balance. That, that, and, that's what I was getting at with that threshold. Yeah. Because if you look at, say, primary teaching, then that might have a, a huge imbalance in terms of gender. Yeah. But nobody's pushing it there. I'm just wondering... I, I, I personally believe it's more of an industry issue. It's because if I'm... If I, have a target to take females then i'm just giving i'm taking female from someone else and giving them the pain of trying to find a female i think we should be impacting the industry of actually going Mm. right how do we encourage it encourage more diverse people to enter the industry and it's not just male female it's different races and stuff and that's where the problem lies if you look at the cvs out there within sales they're not very diverse and what we should do is how we work as an industry of professionals to encourage that diversity. That's the only way we'll impact the top level of leadership of how diverse that is. And what is that, Ollie, in terms of then, why is it that it's not attractive? Because it is an industry that pays well. It is an industry that is relatively flexible. I mean, there's a lot of people in sales working from home now and, and can do that comfortably uh, with the right environment, I, I hasten to add. Um, so what is it then, why are more people not jumping at that? And could there be a clue there as to why maybe it's not as diverse as it could be? I think part of it is the brand of sales. I mean, I don't think, um, <laughs> I don't think that people are proud to be in sales. Most, no, nobody, plan, hardly anyone plans to be in sales. And mm. sales isn't something that people are, tend to be proud of. I think it's got this brand of uh, used car salesmen, dodgy uh, these kind of things that people think it is and i also think that if you look at the tech companies of 10 20 years ago it's not the brand it was today and i think that by uh, with a company that actually shows the culture that they manage with compassion and their care about the right things 
then you can attract the females and the diversity, the, the diversity across the whole team. So it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I just think it's a bigger thing for us to look at. And I think that we should think about, it. I was working with the APS Association of Professional Sales and talking about this because I think it's something we can do. Yeah. John is doing saying someone's saying salespeople make the world go around. Yeah, you I saw agree. that. I'm in sales. Go, John. Go, John. Nothing happens when something gets told, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're the ones that do stuff. So I'd love my daughter to go into sales, but I just yeah. think that it's not an attractive thing for people to. I mean, the APS do some good work. So they want to get it more of a that you get accreditations and uh, degrees to move into sales. Because it's like, I mean, to be an accountant, look at what you do. To go into sales, you don't need anything. I'm not saying you need to be able to do that to go into sales, but it, surely it's a good thing. And to monitor the level of yeah. even honesty within sales will be a good thing. Well, speak, I mean, let, let, let's speak of honesty. Is that sales isn't necessarily attractive in that there's certain aspects we talked about money people can earn, but you have to put up with a lot of rejection as we've already talked about and you have to dig deep sometimes and stay motivated when everything else is falling around you and there, it, you have to deal with huge pressure. In fact, <laughs> I remember the day I used to be a, a pre-sales guy. And I remember the day I went to my boss in Tel Labs and said, hey, Andy, listen, I think I'd like to be in sales. And Andy just laughed and he said, Paul, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. I mean, <laughs> I was looking at it from my point of view that I would come in and do demos and presentations. And I thought that was it. And he said, look, we got targets and in my head, I was going, yeah, 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 right. Until I was there and mm. felt it was different. And you can't make that more attractive. It is what it is. We have to deal with rejection. We have to deal with opening conversations with strangers. And if we hide behind emails in order to do that, we're never going to be as successful as somebody who will pick up the phone and, and speak directly to somebody. And therefore, it requires certain traits and characteristics that if they're not there, it doesn't make a difference what quotas or what... What other benefits? In fact, I, I wrote this down earlier because I thought it was a really, really good one. I, I'm struggling now to, it was, this guy wrote this book about dumb beliefs or dumb decisions that we all make. And uh, he talked about the environment and he says, culture is king, you get what you tolerate. And he says, perks equal entitlement. And that a lot of organizations confuse action and deliverables with perks, the more, uh, hammocks I have in an organization, the more free meals I have, that will attract people. But it doesn't condition them and it doesn't prepare them for the, the difficult days that you're going to have in sales. Mm. And you can't, I was going to say you can't polish, you can't put lipstick <laughs> right <laughs> But you, you can't, you have to deal with it. And if you're not willing to do that, you're just not going to be successful. And so I, I just wonder, are we trying to shoehorn something rather than kind of let us, you know, be open to everybody, be inclusive to everybody, uh, look to attract everybody. But at the end of the day, the people who come through that, that filtering process cannot be any specific color, race, gender, creed, anything else. They can just have attributes of great salespeople. The willingness yeah. to put themselves out there, get outside their comfort zone, pick up the phone, go talk to strangers, Etc. Etc. Agreed, a hundred percent. But this is where it's not attractive to those people, I think. And it's, I mean, if you look at the research that the Institute of Sales Management did around mental well-being in sales, the key reasons why people get stressed is because of the way that leadership are, the targets, and the ups and downs. And it's, I think, just because we have targets, it doesn't mean we have to lead lead in a way that is that I have seen from other leaders. I think we need to partner with our people to help them achieve their goals rather than set a, set a target and write, that's your job. And if you're not, you're out. And I think there's a big difference there. And if you can set that culture and that environment where it is a partnership, I choose to take this person on. So I'm 50% to blame if this person doesn't hit target and I will work with them as their leader to help them achieve it. That is different to how I've seen others do it. And I think that by doing things like that, that we can change the environment, we can make it more attractive. Uh, sorry, I've just got distracted there because another comment came in from John. He says, new people to sales do not see the fun side and stepping outside the zone is scary, but becomes fun. 
great. That's a that's a valid point. Uh, where's the line though, John? Or, sorry, Ollie. Um, you said that you know fifty percent. I'll take that, and and that to me is the ultimate servant leadership. I get that, right? Um, is where's the line though between where people need to take responsibilities for their own goals and and defining what they are, and then saying, okay, this is the job that's going to enable me to achieve that versus yeah. I'm just going to take this job and, and hey, manager, your job now is to help me figure things out. Yeah, I mean, this is where it's, uh, you, you've got to start thinking about uh, how you coach people rather than how you train, how you actually take them. And it's, it's like building resilience. You don't take that pain away. If something closes, you don't go, oh, it's so, if, if something, if you lose a big deal, don't go, oh, that's okay, don't worry. But you also don't blow your top at them. You say, okay, what can we do now and what can we learn from it? So I think throughout it is about, it's, and I don't manage my team that I take everything away and I do everything for them. I get involved where it's needed, but I will say, right, by next one-to-one, -one, I want this, this, and this, and that's their job to do it. I would, you always hope that you sort of work this out in the interview phase. And I think that, being in the interview stage, how do you interview to say, can you do stuff off your own back? Because they're going, oh, yeah, of course I can. I think making sure that they're doing it through the process is a good thing. But also, I like at interview stage, I like to be really honest with them and say, look, I have high expectations. This is hard work. You've got to do a lot of your own back. And I will take these things away from you. So I don't want someone joining the business and then going, oh, I didn't realize it was like this. Tell them what it's going to be like. So, I mean, it is a tough thing to get that right balance, but that's how I see it. Do it with honesty at the beginning yeah. and make sure. I, I think that you've, if you inspire and motivate, then you can hopefully build the followers that they will do this because they want to do it. Here's my, more, my takeaway from that, that then, Ollie, is that you're saying that, yes, people need to be responsible for their own goals, but that your goals are tied up in their, in, in their success too. And that by, by you taking away certain things, that's part of you taking ownership of, of your goals because your goals are very much tied up in, in, yeah. in how they I perform, can't be right? Successful without them. But, and and uh, what I'm also hearing is that if either is one person is less committed than the other to that, then we have a problem. That's where the problem ari arises. Would that be fair? Yeah, and I think if if I have a rep that is less committed and not pulling their weight, then I won't be doing the other things that I'm mm. doing for them. And that won't drive success. And I know what the conversation will be, but I think we've got to be grown up, adult about it in the beginning to say, look, I'm willing to do this, but you mm. need to be pulling your weight a little bit more. And if they still don't, then it, it, you know what direction that conversation is going. But I think that it's too easy to go, well, they're not doing it. I'm not going to do it, but at least have the conversation first. So you, you've said as a leader, you should be the one that is yeah. uh, that has those conversations. Ali, we're just up on the hour. So final, final question. And we need to okay. do this in two minutes, if that's all right. Um, you, I heard you talk about unconscious bias. It's a two-parter. Just maybe briefly, you could say, what is that? And then tell me a little bit about what your unconscious, what you've discovered about your unconscious biases. Oh, wow. <laughs> so unconscious biases, it covers a lot of what we've been talking about. It's the, the ideals and the thoughts that you have that you're not aware of. Okay. So it's, and we did a course when I was at LinkedIn that we, we went through the whole of the, it was a training course and it starts, you start realizing, and it's so much as you look on, let's take it in recruitment, looking at a CV compared to a profile with a picture. There's unconscious bias in there. You're not going, oh, I don't like them because they've got this. But the fact that you're seeing someone that you, and I've made mistakes by doing that mm. when I was uh, new into management. I, I said no to the recruiter for somebody that ended up being one of my top performers because mm. the recruiter said, no, he's brilliant. But I was judging that person's picture. So that is what an unconscious bias is. It's just that we're not aware of the biases we have. Um, and that sort of answers my, the other question. It's um, There was certain things that I learned that I think that the, I, I used to judge too much from the personality and the way that they say things and not look at what they'd said. Mm. This is in my early days of leadership. Just because person A said something 
and that I didn't feel they were qualified or right person to say it, I didn't listen to what they were saying. Mm. And what I then learned to do, getting rid of my unconscious bias, was look at what was said rather than who was saying it and what style they were saying it. And I think there's, it's all of those kind of things that I learned a lot around for unconscious bias that we all have and we don't plan to have them, we don't want to have them, but we just don't know we have them. Does everybody have them? Uh, you're pretty good if you don't. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that I think that most people will have them. I think that I mean, there's whether you say Dalai Lama has them, I don't know, but um, it's it's natural. It's a natural thing for us to have. Yeah, but, but if they're unconscious, how do you know about them? That's the thing. You don't because <laughs> you're unconscious. But I think going through a, an uncon unconscious bias training or something like that is mm. is interesting because you start realizing what they are and it, the thing is they're not vindictive they're not because we don't choose to have them it's not something like that but it does limit us in the way that we're doing even the way we sell if we go to see somebody and we assume that they are whether you call them an insights a blue person or a red person we may assume something that is an unconscious bias that stops us from thinking in a certain way hard to get rid of them though yeah, but awareness with everything is the first yeah. thing. I, I love the, the big area of awareness. So if I'm aware of an unconscious bias, it's the first step to doing anything. Yeah, that's true. Ali, it's been a real pleasure. I, it's been thank insightful. You. I've taken so much for our conversation. I want to thank you again for being my guest today. And I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Thank you, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Ali. Take care. Cheers. Bye.